Hello, everybody. Just wanted to remind you before we get started today that today's episode is a Patreon exclusive. So if you want to hear this interview in its entirety, and of course, you will want to hear this interview in its entirety because Sam Gendon is brilliant, you're going to have to become a patron of DPS. You can do that at patreon.com slash deadpundits. The link is in the show notes. You know what to do. If you are not a patron, you will get a free little teaser here to wet your whistle. But uh, we got to support this new left ecosystem with our funds, unfortunately, because these episodes may be free to listen to, but they are not free to make. So I need to continue the support coming in on Patreon in order to be able to continue doing this into 2022 and beyond. So enjoy this little teaser. And if you are a patron, enjoy this bad boy in its entirety. It's a good one. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and joining me on today's program is a return guest. He is someone who is very special to me. Sam Gendon is going to be joining us on the microphone here in just a moment. Sam, of course, is a longtime co-author, co-contributor, co-thinker, and BFF of the late Leo Panich, somebody who as you all probably know, means a great deal to me and this show. Sam, of course, is owed a large debt of gratitude for all of that as well as one of Leo's closest confidants and co-thinkers. Today, we're going to be addressing a very pivotal question that is hot on the tongues, the pens, and the keyboards of many commentators over the past several months, at least certainly since Joe Biden was elected. We are seeing a possible reversal in the ideology and the governing strategy of the elites turning away from austerity, kind of marketized logics, and towards perhaps something that looks like a stimulus-based approach to governance. We're seeing large infrastructure bills that are making the knees of the likes of Jamie Dimon quake. We are seeing um, ideas about transforming the economy, tackling climate change, addressing student loan debt, addressing, of course, child care needs and all the rest of it that require large influxes of money, cash money backed by the state, which would at least on the face of it appear to be something that runs contrary-wise to the governing neoliberal ideology and logic that has pervaded not only America, but also the global capitalist economy since at least the late 1970s. Lots of people have been talking about this, you know, as this kind of defining moment as the end of neoliberalism and the beginning of something else. Perhaps we could see worker restrictions loosening. Perhaps we could see market regulations increasing. Perhaps we could see a redistribution of wealth. Some on the even progressive liberal center left are hearkening you know, back to the days of FDR and saying that Joe Biden and his administration could be the biggest thing to happen to progressive politics since the New Deal. Well, this is a very surface level reading, as most of you probably already understand, but maybe you don't really understand exactly why this is a surface level reading. Maybe you just sort of smell bullshit because there's just no fucking way that Joe Biden could be our savior, right? Well, you are right and you know you're right, but you might not know exactly why you're right. And so to address those questions, I've brought on Sam Gendon, who is, of course, the co-author of The Making of Global Capitalism, who has, I think, the most compelling case 
of what neoliberalism is, what it's done and what it achieves and what it accomplishes, why it exists and how we even talk about it. So today we're going to answer the question, of course, is neoliberalism over in the negative? But you already knew that. Uh, the more interesting part of our today's conversation, I think, is going to be why. Why is neoliberalism not over? In order to address that question, we're going to have to answer a much deeper question about what is neoliberalism? Is it predominantly ideology? Is it predominantly a, an orientation to the working class, i.e. breaking its back? Is it predominantly an attack on government regulations? Is it predominantly uh, something else? Or is it a deeper structural fix to a set of economic and historical configurations that emerged post-World War II? Jeez, I wonder which one it's going to be. Everybody stay tuned. We're going to find out. <laughs> and of course, the man of the hour is Sam Ginnon. Uh, always a wealth of information. Always a pleasure to have you back on the show. I'm really pumped to get deep into the weeds of these questions with you. Sam, thanks for joining us. Great to be back. So we chatted only a few months ago about the passing of your uh, friend and collaborator, Leo Panich. A lot of really interesting topics and themes arose in that conversation, and I just had to have you back on. I could have you back on probably every week for the next uh, 52 weeks, and we probably wouldn't cover everything that there is to, to, to talk about. Um, your, your, you know, your writings are very extensive. Let's get to the basics here. Under your definition of neoliberalism, you and Leo were writing about this quite furiously around 2000, if I'm not mistaken. You guys had a lot of debates, a lot of hotly contested debates, debates on the, the pre-Bernie, <laughs> the pre-Corbin left, which is kind of a uh, kind of a funny dinosaur to think about it now, looking back on it, isn't it? How did you all conceptualize neoliberalism in that era? Because it really did seem to form some of the groundwork to the way that, that both of you conceptualized this masterpiece of the making of global capitalism. What, what, what were you seeing in the 90s in the scholarly world and the political world about this concept of neoliberalism? And how did you want to address it in the way that the, the both of you ended up doing so coming into the 2000s? Okay. Yeah, big questions. Two, big questions. Two-hour answer coming yeah, up. let's do it. Um, I, I, think, I think Leo and I weren't that comfortable with neoliberalism as a, you know, almost as a slogan for what had gone on. And it needed to be unpacked in two ways. One was that it uh, was coming out of the crisis of the 70s. I think that's especially important. Mm -hmm. But Leo and I went further. We actually argued that the making of uh, capitalism uh, that was freeing up capital and trying to channel labor into individualist, consumerist ways began after the war. It was actually part of the making. So in a sense, we kind of, I don't remember if we wrote much about this, but amongst the two of us, we're thinking of, that's really when neoliberalism starts, this real drive for a particular kind of accumulation. So in essence, you start with the question of neoliberalism, this hotly contested debate in the 2000s about whether neoliberalism, what is it? Is it an ideological yeah. formation? Yeah. So, is it social, so, political? What does it look like? And then you yeah. worked your way backwards in a sense to get to yeah, the post-war so configuration. I, I think, yeah, let me try to – yeah, it's, 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 it's all of those things in a sense in terms of how it's used. But l let me try to say some things about what it isn't and what I think it is uh, and relating it to the late 70s. And I think that'll be helpful to understanding this question of, well, is it over or not? And 
There's two things that Leo and I really want to emphasize. One is that the crisis of the 70s didn't just lead to capitalists saying, aha, let's do this. You know, they were facing big problems. They were facing a labor movement uh, that with the end of the post-war boom and capital needing labor to lower its expectations because they were facing competition. They were facing a profit squeeze. Productivity wasn't rising as much. The dollar was being threatened by inflation. So capital recognized the crisis, but they didn't know exactly what to do with it. So the first thing I just want to emphasize is these things happen in a context of history and uncertainty. And if you go through the 70s, they tried all kinds of things. They tried wage controls. They tried uh, import restrictions. Uh, And nothing was working. Nothing worked until the end of the 70s. Volcker basically said that we have to break the back of inflation. That's Paul we Volcker, U.S. Workers. Uh, Fed chair. Sorry. Okay. Yes. I, I you, know you we, we jumped uh, in the thick of it here. And I don't want to lose yes. anybody along the good. way. No, no, no. That, that's very good of you to do. Uh, he, he said, we have to break the back of inflation. That's the only way you get uh, confidence in the dollar, that we're really protecting the dollar. And uh, that's the only way you can break the back of labor demands. And as long, as long as labor keeps pushing that, you're going to have corporations defending their profits by raising prices. And it was only when they actually let unemployment rise significantly uh, and force, you know, I think there was a Time magazine uh, article that said you can't have uh, picket lines and unemployment lines on the same sidewalk. It's too narrow. And, and that was very insightful. That, you know, if you're going to break the back of inflation, you had to break the back of workers and unemployment has always been the key to that. So the question, so so a new kind of accumulation model begins to emerge. It included, first, that you had to break the back of labor. Second, that you had to liberalize finance because that was part of the substituting for the gold standard that you were going to substitute for it with the dollar and that needed deeper financial markets. And it also meant discipline, that you were going to uh, accelerate globalization, which meant more opportunities for capital, but also weakening labor because capital had more opportunities. And it actually meant restructuring capital itself in terms of improving its productivity, which is interesting because it actually hurt a lot of businesses. The difference is that when you restructure capital, when you increase competition, capital as a class gets stronger. The weak fall fall away the strong takeover. Whereas with labor, when you're restructuring, what you're undermining is solidarity when you have more competition. And so for labor, competition was weakening labor. The other dimension of this that is so important, aside from you know the notion of they had a struggle to kind of start formulating something, and it doesn't even get clear by then. It's kind of getting clearer, but it takes into the 90s. The other thing was that, which I think is absolutely crucial, and uh, Leo, I think, understood this forever, was that markets and states are not antagonistic. That to have markets, you need states, and states uh, depend on markets. I mean, it's not, that's not the polar choice. And that's so fundamental to how we think about whether neoliberalism today is falling apart. And in the context of what I was just uh, describing, if you think about it, okay, you're accelerating globalization, that means more free trade. Well, states had to do that. States had to come to agreements. State had to form these constitutions for property rights that uh, gave capital more confidence in moving on. 
the American state had to, uh, you know, construct the dollar in a way that there was confidence in it. The American state was very active in weakening labor. When, uh, when there was the crisis at Chrysler, and the question is what to do about Chrysler at the end of the 70s, uh, Volcker was himself on the board that was going to decide whether Chrysler would get money or not. And his condition for Chrysler getting money was that you had to outsource more work and force the workers into making concessions. So the state is very active on all these fronts. Uh, and that's important. That the, the way of thinking of neoliberalism isn't as states versus markets, but as uh, uh, creating a regime of accumulation that strengthens accumulation, which means very much having to attack the working class so it's not a barrier to accumulation. Right. That's that's really crucial. I mean, I think so academics have been framing this as states versus markets. Of course, in the post-war era, this is where the state sort of took over and uh, tamed capital. And then neoliberalism is this gradual unraveling of that so-called compromise. And now we're letting markets rip. And and you and Leo right. come along and, and have a, a very compelling thesis. This is probably the thing that, ap- that, that drew me to the two of you in the first place. I found so in- incredibly compelling, um, at least compared to the kind of dominant sociological literature of the time and, and still of today, which really leads us astray in, in modern times, doesn't it? Because now we're seeing the state yeah. seemingly anyway in, in, in the Biden administration with its yeah. various and we're going to see more of this right we're going to see a market crash yeah. in a couple of years probably this bitcoin stuff the crypto market the housing uh you know the housing frenzy that we're in right now the the way that uh, capital and corporations are over leveraged the uh stock bubble the entire stock market is a bubble right now i mean we're going to see some kind of market collapse and you're going to see the state intervene in a way that that's, that maybe even looks 2008 makes 2008 2009 look uh, tame and you're going to see this rhetoric yeah. tamp up even more about oh this is state intervention the death of neoliberalism is nigh um, but but you're you're framing it very differently you're framing each of these regimes as just that as regimes of accumulation uh, grounded and orchestrated by the American state in really uh, important ways and so it's just not as it's just yeah. not as easy as lifting back the curtain um, or or reigning in markets we have to see a can, can I yeah go can ahead, I please, Adam please. yeah I want to make it clearer maybe by linking it to what happens right after the war, by linking it to this period in which people seize the golden age with state intervention. I mean, and and our argument, and I think it's a very compelling and convincing argument, is the role of the state after the war was very active, but it was active in order to strengthen capital, including making capital markets. And that was true at every dimension. So, uh, you know, to the extent that it allows Europe to have a few years of, uh, you know, to have some time of government intervention, uh, of protecting their markets. Well, this was about re- European recovery, and especially the recovery of European capitalist classes, so you could begin to make essentially a neoliberal world order. You know, it, it wasn't about them being soft. It was about using the state to create markets. And it's the same with the welfare state. They weren't decommodifying labor. They were saying we need unemployment insurance so that people stay in the labor market. So it was, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, acknowledging unions was acknowledging particular kinds of unions. The question is, how do you channel, channel labor militancy into consumerism rather than challenging 
control over investment, democratizing investment, or massive uh, redistribution. Let you know, put labor in a position of saying, okay, maybe if the economy grows, we just share in it. And for it to grow, we have to let capital do what it wants. So from the beginning of the post-war period, this is not an era of uh, states decommodifying life and this changes. What happened was that that post-war model ran into its own contradiction, which is that workers who had had a couple of decades of success and unemployment being very low, got very militant and wouldn't just accept workplace authority or a lowering of expectations. So now they had to step it up a notch. And that's what, what we call neoliberalism now at the end of the 70s, was stepping up a notch what was going on before. You know, Adolf Fried had this very nice phrase yeah, for explaining, I was just thinking about for characterizing yeah. neoliberalism. Yeah. He said that uh, neoliberalism, neoliberalism is just capitalism without a working class opposition. Yeah. And he definitely, and, and really he definitely gets, pulls that from you and Leo, that, that, uh, that, yeah. uh, that conclusion, I think. Yeah, but he, he put it, you know, he put it very so greatly. Yeah. And, and, and so that really frames what we're experiencing. We have to understand it in class terms. And so, you know, so what happens in the financial crisis of 2008, on the one hand, not much changes in terms of accumulation. This was about kind of restoring what things were like before 2008, 2009, but with certain kinds of differences. One of the differences was uh, to keep financial markets strong, you needed massive state interference, in, in, not interference, involvement. And a lot of people immediately began to jump on this as, well, this is hypocritical. See, it's not neoliberalism. Well, it was always hypocritical if you thought that, you know, that the state's role was to be democratic and nice to the working class. What it was, was the state seeing a crisis. And of course, to fix this crisis, you had to fix finance. It's capitalism. So they jump in and they do it. And once it's over, we move back to some austerity to pay for it again. Mm -hmm. So it's just a heightened level of, it's a different kind of coordination. States, states coordinate markets, even, even at a distance. Uh, at, yeah. at crisis times, they, they coordinate all the same, just a little differently, a little bit more heavy handedly, perhaps heavy handedly, perhaps a little, yeah. so it's not, not a question of even intervening or not intervening. It's always already sort of um, coordinating markets in a variety of ways. And they just swoop in and get a little bit more handsy. Uh, in, in the time of crisis. And I think that's exactly. And, and when you, you know, so when you, when you look at the pandemic, uh, what capital, what the state has to do is it has to say, I mean, this isn't a normal crisis. That's your point. You know, it depends on what the crisis is like and what you do. They look at this crisis. This wasn't a crisis of profitability. This was a crisis of, we have to shut the economy down to save it. We can't have everybody going off to work and infecting everybody. And therefore, you had to figure out how to reproduce a labor movement if you're keeping them at home. So they do things which involved a lot of expenditures to workers. And they have to think about preserving small business because it can't survive. So you have a state that's operating very actively. And people immediately say, see, the world has changed. 
And it has the, the pendulum, Sam. You don't understand. The pendulum is swinging back. Yeah. <laughs> All these metaphors yeah. and frameworks, like you know, yeah. really do a lot, do a, a lot of damage to a, a, a thoroughgoing yeah. understanding here. If you just look at it at various levels. Uh, various degrees of coordination. There's always coordination, uh, different degrees of coordination for different purposes at, at different ends, rather than this kind of, uh, you know, abstract pendulum swing. I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the kind of, um, yeah. well, I say Polanyi, and that's probably not being very fair to Polanyi. I think he was a little more sophisticated than this, but the kind of Polanyian sociologists that have really, that that idea has really um, just completely permeated the liberal commentariat class, yeah. hasn't it? I mean, the Twitter yeah. sphere, the New York Times editorial board, and all the rest of it. You're right about how popular a certain kind of interpretation of Polanyi was, absolutely. Uh, the work of Lacher at York, who's a Polanyian expert, really puts a myth to that. His writing is very good on tracing what Polanyi was really talking about. Fortunately, uh, nobody nobody reads them. There, there are too many. There are too many. Uh, too many. Whatever. I, I, I digress. Too too much bureaucracy. Too many uh, connections. Academic connections uh, there. Uh, really, that ground. The Polanyian kind of um, ideology grounds almost the entire discipline of economic yeah. sociology. And if there are any good economic sociologists in the audience, and I'm sure there are, uh, apologies because I'm sure you're out there fighting the good fight. But anyway, we we digress. So. Um, I don't know if you want to raise some other things or if you want me to kind of fast forward to Biden, what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about. Yeah. So we, I started I started I prompted you to just kind of get into the thick of it, because the way that you and Leo and, and really especially you, when you come on the when you've come on the show in the past, you just sort of razzle dazzle folks for like 20 minutes. And I get messages saying, you know, I just rewound and just listen to him and rewound it and listen to it again. Around. And if you if you all do that, you know, you you could do much worse than just rewind the first 10 minutes of this interview uh, and go back to the way that you sort of laid all of that out, because it really is a lattice work. It's a structural kind of and one thing sort of depends on the other and in a very kind of comprehensive, coherent way um, and or in an organic way. Let's talk a little bit about. What's fascinating to me is the way that this is neoliberalism emerges out of and then becomes its own accumulation regime. And I think that it's really, really important for the left to start conceptualizing the kind of polit political economic order that we're in right now as a, a very kind of comprehensive, thoroughgoing accumulation regime. So the question for me is if, if, if neoliberalism is, is over, and there are a lot of reasons to believe that's not true, if neoliberalism is over – Another accumulation regime has to come in and take its place. What must that look like? What kind of forces must be at play to move uh, this very kind of this very entrenched uh, set of, of of accumulation strategies that the American state and capital have produced over the past thirty five years and, and even longer, going into the post war era? Um, and so. How, do, how does that play into the way that, that you think through the post-war era coming into neoliberalism as, as an accumulation regime, as an accumulation strategy, this sort of collectivity of, of class, political, uh, social, um, state forces? Um, maybe if you could sort of riff on that a little bit, because that's really the point that I want to drive home here, to get people out of this kind of um, Hayekian ideological notion of neoliberalism as a set of, you know, um, policy preferences of of the, the the ruling class. The way I've seen it laid out by by very smart people is 
it's a four four legged stool here: austerity, privatization, deregula- deregulation, and hostility to workers' organization. And I think that holds up. That's a very nice way of putting yeah. it. I, I guess. Yeah, there's so many dimensions to think about this. Yeah, I mean, you can you have to look at these things historically. I really, you know, Marxists talk about historical materialism, and you have to take historical. It's really crucial. And by historical, I don't just mean time passing. You know, every time something, every time there's a, a serious structural crisis, the 30s, the 60s, the financial crisis, and what we're going through now, things change. And then the next crisis is different. Something wrong with mechanically finding the same answer to each crisis or describing each crisis. Anyway. So one point is we have to think historically. And then we have to think materially, historical materialism. And the point about thinking materially isn't that ideas don't matter, but that ideas are limited in explaining why something actually happens. You know, Hayek says these things in the 40s, kind of shrug. He's... A lot of people said a lot of things in the 40s, and they didn't come to pass, did they? (laughs) Right? And we don't talk about them anymore because they're just, you know, the the words of kooks or or has-beens. And, you know, Hayek was a smart guy, uh, uh, you know, with a fairly transparent agenda. But, yeah, the fact that there are ideas around, uh, yeah, you always have to battle the, you know, you battle ideas. That's part of the struggle. But you have to say what's... You have to ask the question of what's underlying these ideas without dismissing ideas. Uh, you know, when do ideas play a material force? The other thing I think we have to understand is, when I say historical, is that after the war, the legitimacy of the system was critical. And I say this because I think a lot of what happens depends on, is the working class relevant or not as a barrier or as a social force? You know, I, I'm saying this, I want to, we'll get back to it, but when we talk about the end of neoliberalism, uh, if we see class and the defeat of the working class as such a fundamental part of what's been happening, then the question is, well, if the working class is so weak, why would we expect a radical change in what's going on? So after the war, legitimating, uh, you know, legitimating capitalism is always important after things like wars. You know, when you have a war, people see uh, working people sacrificing, the rich doing very well. They see the state doing things like planning to an unprecedented degree, which they figure, well, why don't we just continue it? There's all kinds of things going on. And the working class comes out of the war usually more militant because there's recovery and strikes are more important. And the working class was so important because in Europe, a lot of the questions were still class questions. The opposition to fascism, Nazism, uh, was coming from the left. It was communists. So the Communist Party's come out very strong, and the working class is asking quite radical questions. The U.S. was trying, knew that it would have to integrate working classes everywhere into the global project. And the key to that was the demonstration in the United States. They had to show that if you accepted the system, you could make gains within the system. This was critical. So this question of legitimacy, the strength of the labor movement, winning people over to a certain model of capitalism was critical after the war. Now, one of the things that happens in the 70s is that they suddenly can't afford legitimacy. They can't just meet these consumerist expectations even, never mind radical expectations. And that raises a problem. What do you do? And one of the things that emerges, it doesn't actually emerge until, you know, the mid-80s with Thatcher and stuff, is that capital begins to see that labor's a paper tiger. 
we don't actually have to legitimate things. Uh, all we really need is to make them feel fatalistic. Get the working class to think that this is all there is. There is no alternative, as Thatcher said. And if you can get workers to think fatalistically, uh, legitimacy is less important. We don't have to keep buying them off anymore. Now, the reason that you can do some of that is the working class actually made significant gains through the 50s and 60s, materially. So now, even though when concessions first emerge, workers are fighting them. I don't want to give up anything. But soon they do it in a defensive way. Okay, I've actually won a lot and I want to hang on to it. So I'll give up some things to hang on to it. And that's kind of the beginning of a, a deep downward spiral. You've got your head into lowering your expectations, not asking for more for your labor or collectively. So fatalism begins to take over instead of legitimacy. And, you know, there are some things that workers can still get, but it's by working harder. You go into debt and then you have to pay the interest rate. Your partner, instead of having a part-time job, gets a full-time job. Your kids, instead of being students at university, are students and they're working to make an income. You're working overtime, which is kind of remarkable. Acceleration of technology, acceleration of family hours. So, so it's a lot of this is being absorbed by workers taking it out on themselves, accepting more pressure, speed up, and that can't last forever. It can last for a certain amount of time because you can go into debt, you can work more hours. By the 2000s, the hours question is getting saturated. You can't solve it just by working more hours in the family, uh, but you're in debt. And then the financial crisis hits and throws everything out of whack. But what the what Trumpism is very much about is that throughout this process, capital is being delegitimated in terms of people loving capitalism or thinking this is going to constantly improve for their future and their kids. People don't believe that anymore. I'm just speaking from my own experience in the 60s. We used to run around when we talked to workers trying to convince them that, uh, yeah, you have a lot of things, but your life is shallow. And uh, you don't have to tell any workers that things think anymore. You have any conversation with workers, they know it. The trouble is they don't think that they can do anything about it. Because the other half of the defeat of labor was the defeat of the left, linked to the defeat of labor. But the defeat of the left, taking socialism off the agenda, not having socialists in a workplace that can raise anything, not it being in the air, even in a marginal way, was a devastating thing. Workers are left with nothing. What else is there to do? So they defend themselves. They work more through their vacation, you know, whatever it is. But it accumulates. And the establishment basically tries to contain it, whether it was the Democrats or the Republicans. All of a sudden, Trump stands up and he, in a populist way, speaks to those frustrations, mixes them with racism, mixes them with their status, mixes it with immigration. But basically what he's doing is he's playing to frustrations, articulating them, and basically mobilizing people to give a finger to the elite. Even the elite that used to, uh, their rhetoric used to support them at election time, but they know that they're betrayed and people get very mad at people that betray them. So I think what we have to understand about this moment, and, and this will be controversial, um, I don't think capital is in crisis. 
I think we have a legitimacy crisis, which creates certain kinds of openings. But with the weak labor movement and the left that is really struggling, and we can get back to that, you know, the Sanders, Corbyn, Syriza left, um, it's not clear what the answer is. So, uh, you know, in terms of crises, capital always has crises. We've we got to get away from this notion of a crisis is the end of the world. The question with a crisis always is, can capital adjust to it? <clears throat> and whether capital can adjust to it or not has a lot to do with whether labor just gives them the time and the space to adjust. If labor basically says, we'll complain, but you can do whatever you want to us, and you can take a lot of time, as you know, with the financial crisis, as with the 70s crisis, uh, they still have the capacity to adjust to it. You know, what came out of the 70s, for example, was in the 80s and 90s, America lost a lot of industries. They just industries disappeared, not only companies, but look what happened. We get Google, we get Amazon, we get Walmart. American capital was still dynamic and it still is. But that was the question of Trumpism, though, wasn't it? Because it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, certain fractions of capital uh, backed Trumpism in a, in a way that they saw their power diminishing um, in the face of transnational capital, right? The kind of local notable, the, the you know the 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 oft uh, the oft lampooned um, you know sea do uh, dealership owner yeah. and the, the car dealership <laughs> owner Definitely. and uh, the 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 local accountant yeah. and these other types who are seeing their services threatened by by transnational capital. Yeah, not only threatened, I, I, I've always thought that uh, one of the reasons that these small businesses, um, you know, including ones that came out of the working class, maybe especially ones that came out of the working class, are so conservative because the greatest threat to them is that they'll have to become workers. Yeah. So, so they will do everything. And, and, you know, even in terms of their conflicts and tensions with the big bourgeoisie, uh, I, I saw a wonderful example in Canada during the free trade to, uh, fight in the mid-80s. The Canadian Manufacturers Association did a survey of their members on what they thought of free trade, and uh, a strong majority was opposed to it. Uh, half a year later, I did this was private, but I, I knew the guy who was the head of it. Uh, half a year later, it was reversed. And what happened is the small businessmen who didn't want free trade, who don't like big business because they feel like big business doesn't pay taxes and et cetera, but when it came down to it, uh, they take their lead from big business. They depend on them. They're the suppliers, and they don't have the confidence to stand up and say, "We don't want free trade." And you know, the challenge is, "What are you afraid? You can't compete." So big business kind of takes over ideologically and materially in terms of dependency on them. That's who leads, and they followed it. But when Trump comes along and wants to use them, you know, uh, he used and a lot of the elite. At, at first, was happy to see this. I mean, after the financial crisis, you have the Tea Party. It was a great distraction from saying, "Why do we let finance do these things in a democracy?" You know, if, if, if finance is so important, why isn't it a public utility? So the Tea Party plays a role, and then you can't quite put the genie back in the box, and it surfaces as Trumpism. And uh, you know, so in, in thinking about Trumpism, um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that they're really powerful base of it, which doesn't come through as much, is uh, small businesses, petty bourgeoisie, 
But there is a section of the working class that is really frustrated. I would say there's a section of the working class, which I, I think the numbers are exaggerated, but it's a very significant section, which is racist and xenophobic. Uh, but the reality is, is that most workers kind of move. They may accept some of these things, but they're frustrated. And uh, Trumpism spoke to that frustration. And we have to be careful not to write them off. Even if they may have racist tendencies, some of them or a lot of them, uh, we, we can't see that in essentialist ways. We have to see that they're capable of changing. You know, you go to a picket line and you watch what happens on a strike and you see black workers and white workers when they're on strike, recognizing that they're in the same boat. And it's not even just black workers and white workers. You know, a lot of tensions are between people amongst people of color. I, I, was, I was speaking at an event in Alberta, and there was a strike of women on. It was mostly Asian women. And uh, the first day on the picket line, there was a Chinese guy with a sign. They'd never even seen him before, heard of him before. And the boss is going into work through the picket line, and he stops in front of this Chinese guy. And he says, hey, Fu Young, what are you uh, doing out here? Seeing him, it's not like the Asian women. And the guy turns to the boss and says, I'm on, fight. I'm on fucking strike, man. And the Asian women just blow up. They didn't even know this guy spoke English. And then suddenly you have a different relationship between them as well. So, you know, these are dynamic things. And the left has to figure out how to deal with them. We cannot write off uh, people this way. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the challenges to the left. But what I really want to emphasize, maybe we can talk about this more, is the pandemic is over. Biden has had to do certain things to show he really is different than Trump. He's had an opportunity to do this. Even, you know, most of capital, pockets that are different, but most of capital accepts that these major things, which if Sanders was pushing for, would be seen as communist revolution. They, they accept that what Biden is doing is safe. It's within bounds. Uh, Biden is trying to do them carefully. We can talk a little bit about what that means. But he's also got his eye on uh, the midterms electorally. And so I think the big question for us is going to be, uh, once the Democrats consolidate this difference and get the economy back on track, are we going to get a return to questions about the deficit and how do you pay for these things? And how will Biden respond to that? There is going to be wealth taxes. You know, we've already seen this. But if you look at his corporate taxes, you know, there's somewhere between what taxes were before Trump and what taxes, taxes were when Trump came in. So there's nothing unusual there compared to other countries. Uh, you look at his wealth taxes, they're kind of the super rich look at them and say, well, it's OK, we can handle that. That doesn't really change that much. Uh, you look at the environment. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of expenditures, but there are incentives to business. There's things that business can do, as well as infrastructure that they can get contracts for. What there isn't is a direct challenge to capital. No one is saying in, the, in, in his administration that you can't fix the environment by leaving it to fragmented corporations competing with each other for profit. We need planning. If you want planning, you have to control what you're planning. So he, he's not threatening capital. He is introducing things that sound New Deal-ish, but these, you know, the labor reforms that he's 
pushing, which the left is really cheering on, it's positive. But what the left isn't saying is, how come car check has dropped? That used to be kind of an automatic, even with Biden. And so, you know, so what we are seeing is, I, you know, I, I would personally say that I think he's going further than I expected. But I did expect uh, that he would, uh, you know, have to do some progressive things. He, he cannot, he cannot get the Democrats elected again, do the same old shit and not expect another uh, pushback that's popular. Um, and capital recognizes that there is a legitimacy problem. Trump showed him that. So he's got some freedom to do things, but things are going to happen afterwards. And I, I'm not kind of ready to predict what will happen. But I do know that if you want to solve the big problems uh, of people, you have to have massive wealth redistribution and you have to start thinking about limiting capital in certain ways. And I don't think that Trump is there. He defeated Bernie on the basis of making sure. Yeah, I mean, the Democratic Party saw Bernie as more of a threat than Trump. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And so, yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, we're going to have to, you know, as things change in the economy, whether it's a crisis or whether it's not a crisis, but it can't get, go very far without challenging capital. Then we're going to get the real questions. And, uh, you know, a very big question, which I don't know if we have time to talk about, but there, the question of the response of the left is absolutely critical. You know, it's, it's easy for us on the left to say, and my comrades all say it is, we can't invent things. If the working class isn't doing anything, what, what can we do? You know, but the reality is that socialists are the voluntaristic arm of revolution and social change, which doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. We obviously, there has to be a base there, but we have to think of something that can spark and start building this so that workers begin to have a sense of change is possible, hope matters. Uh, because without that, you can see why nothing happens. If you don't have hope, you know, why even think about anything? Right. Yeah, the left is always kind of um, plants the seed that is then disseminated or not disseminated, but often lately in the last decade, it has yeah. been disseminated into the kind of, and yeah. the one thing I've been talking about over the past few weeks here on this show is how astonishing it is to me taking a little bit of a break from the kind of established left and just sort of being out among the people, right? It's how how kind of just knee-jerk and obvious a lot of these left positions are among certain uh, generations, uh, millennials and Gen Z types in their you know 20s and 30s and teens even about it. It's like, of course I'm a socialist, right? I mean, I've, I've run into more people accidentally yeah. who identify as some kind yeah. of socialist in the last few yeah. months than I ever have in my entire life. And it could be just by- It's, it's good and bad. It's it is. Good and it bad. is good and bad, right? It, it's, it's great. It's great because it really, and Sanders really deserves a lot of credit for it uh, and, and running in the Democratic party, I think, you know, it was an opportunity to do this, even though people like Leo and I would have said, that's, you can't, you know, that's, that's a bad move. But I think people should get credit for the fact that it actually opened up space. That's the really good news. It opened up space. It uh, got a lot of people interested. The bad news is, is that it comes with deflating what socialism is. Socialism becomes universal health care. or So it's a question of, which, which really gets to interesting political questions, like the role of DSA in a Democratic Party. Can I say something about that, or would you rather just stick to what where we are on the neoliberal question? 
Let's let's do that, and then I, I'm I'm kind of desperate to rewind okay. a little bit back to some of the more kind of structural foundation stuff. But I, I want to strike the iron while it's yeah. Hot. Maybe we can do that another time then, because I, I think okay. I'll make a note. I'll, I'll I'll flag some stuff on DSA here because I want to I want to I want to I like I said when you go I want to just let you go because there's so many nuggets and so many jewels and that, that come out in the process. It's just too valuable to to try to cut you off and 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 tease into more kind of specific yeah, matters. But, but, but I want to take back, us all yeah. the way. I want to take us all the way back to the pressure because this, th- this to me is more than anything going to be determinant in terms of um, where we go next in terms of the, the new, the new, the new accumulation regime, which is dollar seniorage. Yeah. The, the U S dollar. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that the, the, the left really, really many people at all, but certainly not the U S left has um, enough of an appreciation of, of what kind of pressures uh, the American state and capital and the class fractions thereof um, are under the kind of pressures that they are under to maintain this global order. Okay. Now you have some people on one end saying that, well, the dollar's over, you know, crypto's taken over, Bitcoin, whatever, Ethereum, or, you know, on one hand, you got uh, the kind of techno futurists. You've got uh, the, the China uh, obsession now emerging in, in many Democratic Party establishment uh, sectors suggesting that China is our big threat and the renminbi is going to somehow liberalize and even, you know, but, but then, then there's a really interesting question. Uh, I believe we talked about this a little bit yeah. the last time you were on the program, which in maybe illustrating how, what kind of challenges the Chinese government faces uh, by possibly liberalizing the renminbi in order to overtake the U S dollar and dollar seniorage across, across the world. Because to me, the most fascinating component of, of the, the story, the narrative that you and Leah weave is that the U.S. state and capital had to crush labor in the 70s in order for the dollar system, the way that it was instantiated, to continue. They had there, there, there are these economic laws of, of contradictions that come into place when you have liberal regimes of, of finance and currency, you know, monetary fiscal economic policy and the those those pressures all came to a head in the 70s didn't they and and so we had a choice a choice was to to find a way to tame the capital and maintain its liberalization you know that had been the basis of this american system post war or we had to crush labor's expectations uh, in order to to tame stagflation, which, of course, uh, that's been the, 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 the path that we have pursued ever since. And so the idea that we could somehow, you know, overturn neoliberalism under the, the U.S. dollar internationally without massive <laughs> forms of economic planning and on all the rest of it is just it's, it's just it's just laughable. So the fact that we're even having this conversation tells me that. That a lot of people on the left and certainly in the liberal chattering classes are just not serious about understanding the implications and ramifications of the the dollar system worldwide. So could you kind yeah. of riff on that a little bit? Okay. I mean, that's a crucial question. I mean, that's why history gets so important. I mean, really understanding what happens in the 70s is the key to understanding the dollar. So, so, so the 70s, just going back very quickly had a number of contradictions that they had to deal with. The most important of which was there was a profit problem. Uh, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't that workers caused that problem. You know, crises happen. But they couldn't get out of it without squeezing the workers. That was the point. And workers were resisting. 
So there, so you get a, you and Leo got a lot of shit for your profit squeeze yeah. thesis. Let, let, the let idea me, there let me, is, let me, well, you're blaming the workers. Yeah. You're blaming the workers for the profit squeeze, and therefore, because well, there's there's the you know there was a falling rate of profit versus the yeah. profit. Squeeze, let me say something uh, about that debate back in. Let, uh, let me say something about the profit ago. squeeze because I, yeah. I, I I think the left line on this isn't great. Um, Although that's that's changing, you just don't see these debates anymore, and that's for the yeah. that's for the better, isn't yeah, it? That's for the better. But I, I do want to explain some of it because I think it's important. Um, and I, I yeah, I'm the I'm the economist of the two of us, and I always had to try to convince Leo of things because he was skeptical, and that was one of the great dynamics of us working together. Uh, I, I couldn't get away with what I thought either. This is this is my reading, and I'll just do it quickly. But I want to get to your question. I wasn't interested in why we had a downturn in the 60s or 70s. I mean, I was interested, but that wasn't a decisive question to me because there's always downturns or the end of the boom suggests it's going to be a little more difficult to me. The question that I was interested in is why couldn't they fix it? You know, there's a Marxist way that these things get fixed. The inefficient guys drop out, you destroy that capital and, and things get fixed, whatever it is, or the government steps in and it, uh, uh, stimulates the economy again and it gets fixed. Question is, why wasn't it getting fixed in the 70s? I think that was the question that was so important. And uh, our argument was, well, it wasn't getting fixed because the institutional makeup of the U.S. couldn't handle this post-boom period. You know, technology wasn't getting implemented radically enough. The strength of the working class was weak. You had to have a a change in social relations and new kinds of institutions to revive capitalism again. And where the workers came in, and Leo and I said they were a problem because capitalists saying you have to accept the technology more directly. In fact, you have to you have to absorb it and help us with the new technology. Yeah. You, you, you need to, to restructure. And so workers were yeah. were were pegged as yeah, the, you the, needed to the, restructure and we need holding the back the tide of modernization, right? Yeah. And we needed workers to also accept less so there was more investment. Yeah. And so in that sense, workers were a barrier to the problem being fixed until they could break workers. Unions, could, is, it, is it going too far to suggest that unions became uh, easy? To, it was easy to peg unions perhaps for the first time in, in, in modern history as regressive instead of progressive. Is that how liberalism recast trade unions in the way that they're seen now as holding back progress, as holding back modernization? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was new. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that capital doesn't use that argument all the time, that they're the forces of modernization. Mm-hmm. I think the problem in terms of the working class was that it was militant, but it didn't have an alternative beyond militancy. I see. So so it, did, it didn't, for example, see, challenge. Right. It didn't challenge. It didn't have an alternative vision. It didn't say, let's democratize yeah. investment. Right, right. Let's say corporations can't just leave because they want to. Mm-hmm. They didn't say that if a corporation that made a lot of profit decides it's going to go someplace else. We'll take it over. We'll expropriate. And this is why Leo would get red in the face whenever anybody would, uh, you know, uh, defend social democracy because he came out and you yeah. came out of an era, uh, particularly Leo would get red in the face uh, about yeah. this because those were the folks that kind of uh, social democratic uh, bureaucratic types who who were perhaps holding back the the potential creativity that could have emerged from the working class and union sectors. Yeah. I, I'd go moment. a little further. Yes, you could. You could. Social democrats. We're tr- interested in administering capital because right, right, they were they were the state and, in many and many also areas. being legit, you know, getting enough legitimacy to get the government. But yeah. 
the problem was that I Americanized the question there, I guess. Yeah, Which, no, yeah the, social the, Democrats the, the, were not necessarily yeah. in power in the way they were uh, across the Western yeah, world. But, but, in the same but, way but you know, the, the question was the working class and socialists having to be more radical at that moment because the options were polarized. And that's always a question. What happens when the options are polarized? What do you do? But I want to get back to the dollar thing. So you have a situation where gold was the standard after the war. The United States had all this gold, it had this capacity to export and everything else. That begins to have constraints. And people uh, want to get paid in gold in the US. The gold stocks get worn down and you only have so much gold. So you have a problem. How is the system going to keep functioning? And I don't think they completely understood it, but they stopped selling gold and they say, we're going to pay you in dollars. We're not converting them to gold. And I don't think they knew what would happen. They were nervous about it. They find out that, well, what choice do people have? And then they begin to see that, well, finance can actually help here. If we can deepen financial markets so everybody has confidence in them, the dollar thing can really work. And why the dollar thing is so important, because the U.S. is trying to spend militarily, invest abroad. So it's always spending more. And it wants to be able to keep doing this. And on the other hand, Americans are importing things. And it doesn't want to be limited by trade restraint. It doesn't want to be limited by its balance of of, uh, trade. So if the U.S. can have the dollar uh, as the international currency, basically, and uh, uh, just print dollars as needed, it's in great shape. It's an incredible benefit. There's a catch, as there always is. To do this, you have to give people confidence that you're not going to devalue the dollar. Of course, it's going to bounce around. But it's not going to keep falling over time. And you have to convince people that you're the best guarantor of property rights, which, again, American state, who does that? Then you have to part of guaranteeing them about property rights is you have to show we can manage our labor. In fact, managing your own labor was more important to the United States than almost anywhere else, because that was critical to confidence in the dollar. So, So containing labor was so fundamental. And Volcker really understood that. The interesting thing about Volcker, Leo and I uh, interviewed him, and he was complaining about what was going on in the 90s and in 2000 in terms of inequality. He was complaining to us about it. And his argument was, well, when I did this at the end of the 70s into the early 80s, it was necessary. We didn't have a choice. We could not break inflation restore profits, restore confidence in the dollar without breaking the back backs of workers. So maybe two arguments that there was, there was slack in the, there was excess slack in the system. So the workers could bear it. And then it was necessary. So the ends justified the means. Whereas in the nineties, it was just cruelty, right? Yeah. He genuinely felt yeah. that he felt that capital had taken advantage of this moment. Now there's, there's a certain truth to it that we, which we have to recognize the level of inequality has gotten so great that there's actually room to correct it without challenging, you know, undermining capitalism. This isn't one of those cases where <clears throat> if workers were militant, you'd say, oh, no, no, if you're militant, you inevitably will have a crisis and then you'll have to deal with more radical things. There's actually room for a certain kind of liberalism to correct some of this stuff because it's gotten so extreme. So the point that I want to emphasize about seniorage is that it had enormous importance benefits the United States. That's the first thing. They could keep doing everything they're doing. The second thing is that it came with a burden, which meant that the working class 
you know, it, it was going to see more imports. It was going to see their jobs replaced. Um, and, and so that was a cost. But the other part of it was, uh, yeah, you know, and, and managing the working class and lowering its expectations was fundamental. But the other thing is we can't just think of this as the United States as another state that is thinking in terms of its own interests. The United States understood that the global system on which its own capitalism depended was its main responsibility. Now, these things, two things go together. The responsibility of the American state was to keep global capitalism going, uh, to reproduce global capitalism. And in fact, to reproduce global capitalism, somebody had to lead it. And the U.S. was the only one to lead it. So reproducing itself as a dominant power was central to also reproducing global capitalism. So, so, so there's this dynamic of the Federal Reserve starts acting as the global bank of the world. It wasn't just doing what's in America's interest, but also globally. And that has certain contradictions. It, it does mean that America depends on Chinese funds flowing in, which gets to the Chinese issue. So, so very quickly, first of all, there's the larger question than finance, which is that China's whole growth strategy has been based on integrating itself on a global system that the U.S. So, you know, superintends. They don't want to risk this system at all. So they're not interested in challenging the U.S. They're just interested in changing their status within it. They have interests as a powerful, growing state that are special, but that doesn't include we want to be the leaders because being the leaders means all kinds of responsibilities. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah, and so we we imagine we imagine the Chinese state as being so uh, so draconian, authoritarian. In some ways, they are for sure. But it, even they, even the Chinese state at this point, is terrified of the uh, domestic implications and ramifications of liberalizing their currency in the way that the United States has had to do since the 1940s. Yeah, and, and that's, <laughs> so, that, that's... So imagine that, right? That, that, that's that. the critical point that you're raising in terms of China. If China... And, you know, when Leo and I say that uh, China is... This isn't... You can't understand this in terms of inter-imperial power, uh, a rivalry. They're just too integrated. This is no comparison to what was going on in the early earlier parts of the uh, last century. Uh, they're so mutually integrated uh, that that kind of competition isn't on. There's going to be tensions. There's going to be conflicts. There's going to be a reordering of status. But it gets to what you know you were just driving at is if China were to try to replace the US, it would mean that their currency would have to be the global currency, which as you said, could only happen if it was liberalized. No one's going to trust it if they think China can turn on a dime. Right. And that's what US capital complains about. U.S. capital complains that China can just take a take out a red pen, right, and just strike out various debts and, and insolvencies and any economic issues that come along. They can just make them disappear because their current. I think the the listeners need to really really get this that their currency is not liberalized in the way that the dollar is and many others are. So it doesn't have to stand up against international scrutiny in the same way. And so they can solve domestic political problems 
by manip by what our you know our capitalist class calls manipulating their currency, which is what they're doing. That is what they're doing. But it's something that we would do under a planned economy as well. So it's, you know, it's not it's not a cardinal sin to quote manipulate your currency. It's a cardinal sin to the to the liberal class, the the, the political economic elites, because we can't do that. Uh, without having severe ramifications for uh, faith in the dollar, possible inflation, and, and other types of uh, capitalist yeah. intra-party, intra-class, uh, uh, you know, um, yeah. uprisings, basically. Well, there's, uh, there's two things. I mean, one is that the legitimacy of the Chinese regime is based on its ability to keep the economy growing very fast. The U.S. still has democracy for all the pressures that are on it that legitimate whoever is in power. For them, that kind of stability is crucial. And liberalizing, yeah, liberalizing their currency would raise the question of who needs a communist party to control it in an authoritarian way, which, so it, it would mean the Chinese communist party giving up its power to control the economy and therefore its legitimacy in administering the economy. So they would have to discipline labor and the middle yeah. class in the way that even they don't feel like they can. There's a tremendous amount of labor uprising in China. Yeah. I think that's that's not yeah. very uh, poorly it, reported on. By yeah, it, right? it's not only yeah, it, it's it's that you know it's that you, you you put yourself in a position of asking like right now we depend on the Chinese Communist Party running this economy, and if it's actually being run by financial markets. And by, uh, you know, uh, markets generally and liberal, liberal, liberalized markets, uh, it does raise the question of well, why not democratize the society, which is what the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want. But there's another element of this is important. For all of Trump's rhetoric about bringing jobs back, if you look at what he's actually did while he was in office, what he was asking, what he was threatening China with when he imposed tariffs was uh, he wouldn't drop them unless they liberalized. And what did you mean by liberalizing? Unless they let our financial firms go in there and unless they let our high-tech firms go in there uh, without their patents being stolen. So in a sense, it was Trump that was trying to get them to liberalize their markets and them resisting, but making concessions now as part of being integrated into the liberal order. But the idea of them going so far as you know, to completely liberalize. That's just not on, which doesn't mean that it can't happen at some point. I mean, you know, we're analyzing what we see. And if you look to the future, there's so many questions to ask. I mean, China has its own contradictions, like a capitalist class emerging. Uh, and, you know, what role will the workers play in the future? They're able yeah. to throw them in jail now. You know, they're, they're able to jail, yeah. uh, you know, Jack Ma if they want to, probably, uh, yeah. you know, but that's not always going to be the case. Yeah. Um, and so that's not to say that it may there may not be some kind of a varying um, the institutional kind of configurations and the various entries, interests inside and outside the Chinese Communist Party may shift such that liberalization becomes uh, more of an asset than a, than a threat that could happen in, in the coming decades. But I yeah, think what you but, know, the liberal um, you know, commentary any, is afraid any, of anything. They're, they're happen. thinking of like a they're thinking of like a almost like a Pearl Harbor style of one day we wake up and the major uh, economies in the world have shifted to the renminbi or something, yeah. right? Like no, behind we're, our we're backs, not even, we're not even know, close like to it, that. It, it's laughable. It's laughable. Uh, but 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 the reason why I bring that up is not just to sort of touch on this debate that I've wanted to cover, you know, extensively on this show, and I never really quite have. I need to get Ho Fung Hung on. You you, you all know Ho. Yeah. He's a yeah. 
uh, a, a writer at the Register. Um, he's a really great sociologist. Speaking of economic sociologists, he's a good one at uh, Hopkins, I believe. Is he still? No, he he ended up at uh, SUNY, if I'm not mistaken. He's at SUNY now, anyway. Yeah. Wallerstein's old department. Um, I, I want to just be just before we leave the Chinese thing. Yeah. The, the, the fact is that China is putting its surplus that it's earning through trade and through investment coming in into U.S. treasuries, not because anyone is twisting its arm. It's doing it because it has nowhere else to put them. It doesn't want to just hang on to them and see the Chinese renminbi rise and become uncompetitive to the rest of Asia. It can't put them in Europe because the first thing the Europeans would do, who wouldn't want to see their currency rise, is they would invest them in dollars. So, you know, there is this integration, not just through trade and investment, but also financially, where China is voluntarily taking the surplus that ends, and you have this virtual circle where they put it into the United States and reproduces the system. Anyways, let's get back to what you wanted to get to. It, it's, a, it's a game of currency hot potato, and it always ends in uh, U.S. treasuries, which then has to re-enter the circuit of global capital, doesn't it? Um, yeah. It's... Uh, Fascinating stuff. But I, I raised the Chinese example because it's it, it demonstrates um, in a really, I think, a really useful way, the difficulties and the burdens faced by the American state and, and the various fractions of classes and uh, in the United States of dollar seniorage. And, and the fact that we could somehow um, overcome that regime of accumulation <laughs> – that structural institutional, um, you know, fact of history uh, by, you know, even even tens of trillions of dollars in economic programs and stimulus is laughable because I'm trying to think of an appropriate metaphor here. Right. Um, it's like dumping more gasoline in the same engine. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's the same engine. <laughs> you know, pretty stark metaphor there. Um so let's get back to let's. I wanted to kind of take us back into history to talk about that and, and how that began to unravel. And of course, one thing we haven't maybe talked about enough of that I want to kind of maybe touch on very briefly before we get to the the contemporary context to wrap up is the kind of um, innovations in the financial markets that were required in order to pull all of this off. Uh, because I suspect we're going to see a reemergence of all of that stuff uh, in in the next few years. I don't. Lord knows I don't want to see an economic collapse. I'd do very badly in one. Uh, I, may be, I may be hitting you up for some money, Sam. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of us may be on the dole uh, in the coming economic collapse, depending on how that plays out. But uh, but I think it's inevitable that we're going to see some kind of reconfiguration, some kind of um, adjustment in, in the future. So, you know, again, another broad prompt, because I like to see where you're going to take it. Talk to me about those kind of innovations in the finance in the financial markets that enabled this... Uh, regime to to kick off in, yeah. in a much more profound I, I, way coming guess, out of the seventies. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is um, these kinds of things, you know, are I mean they're difficult, they're complex, they're contradictory. Uh, they don't just evolve by somebody mapping something out on a piece of paper. And even if they do, you have to wait for whether it can actually materialize that way or not. So, so they're complicated. And you know, we had one of those complicated moments when we went off the dollar and I mean, off the gold and going to the dollar, uh, you know, a lot of things are already involved. Uh, finance had to actually have fairly deep markets in place so that you could imagine finance becoming the main vehicle for dealing with exchange rates and trade and imbalances. Um, and 
the insight, I think, that uh, the state had at the time uh, in the Treasury and in the Fed was the need to liberalize finance so that markets could become bigger and deeper. And, and this depended entirely on uh, American markets. There were also changes happening in Europe, in, in, in the UK. But that was one moment uh, of finance pushing against its limits. Finance had limits up to that point, even though it was at the same time very powerful. But it began to push against these limits. And that ended up with liberalizing finance. And then liberalizing finance uh, means that you have to find ways of regulating it better. It required more state for finance, for more financial markets. And the 2008 crisis ends up highlighting that. And what you end up with is a lot of creativity within the Fed about how to deal with this. You know, suddenly they're doing quantitative easing. This was unheard of. That well, let's just print money. You know, instead of let's just lower interest rates, and so you see that kind of creativity. And then again, in this crisis, they make two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine uh, injections look like, excuse me, it looked like nothing. So, so there's this constant discovery of what they can do. Then there's the discovery of, well, you have to monitor them. You have to actually keep tab on this. You have to know who's really weak so you can go in and do something, like maybe get forced a merger uh, or, or, or inject some capital. So, you know, they, the, the regulation really expands dramatically. You're getting them involved in uh, actually having somebody in each major bank so they can monitor it and have the detail immediately. So you actually have a quite interventionist state structures in the Fed and the Treasury to make financial markets work. But there's a other, another whole dimension of this, uh, which your friend Steve Marr has been working on, which is that the changes in finance then begin to change how corporations themselves work. Corporations begin to internalize financial markets so they can assess each of their different operations, which ones really are the most uh, profitable. You start having industry itself use finance more as a measure internally, because how else, how do you figure out which of our, you know, it's not a market, it's not an open market in that sense. So industry begins to change and finance becomes more important in industry. But then finance itself needs the operations it's investing in to really uh, deliver a surplus that it can then reallocate. So you've got this dynamic about finance being more interested in industry, but more at kind of the top level. What are you, what are you investing in? You know, how you're operating in each local thing is a different kind of thing. So you're getting this relationship between finance and industry in which you might be able to talk about financial capital, but you have to be very careful. It's not that finance is only speculative. What I'm trying to get at is finance under capitalism is very functional. You need finance in terms of personal debt, in terms of mergers, in terms of exchange rates, in terms of, you know, if you're going to be global. It's the scaffolding that underpins all of it. Yeah, every, you need, a, you know, so finance is functional and now yeah. it even gets functional within industries. And then industry, so, so on one hand, finance isn't just speculative. On the other hand, industry doesn't disappear. This myth of we're now just finance. Industry is there. It's a material economy, you know, and services and private services. So they're still distinct, but they're 
integrate it in a new way uh, in terms of the whole. And, and, and trying to unravel and understand that, which is kind of a new field, I think, uh, a lot of old roots, but it's a, a new field really figuring this out, is another dimension of the, you know, when we're thinking about new modes of accumulation, uh, or not new modes, but maybe modified forms of accumulation. So that's all going on. The, the key thing in all of this, in terms of figuring out, isn't just kind of trying to understand all these technical things and what capital is doing and competition. It's getting to the question of where does the working class fit into this? If the working class is passive, then it is hard to talk about neoliberalism ending. If the state is more involved, it's to reproduce what used to exist uh, or, or to kind of recapture some legitimacy if it's lost it. But it isn't to radically transform the economy or to reintroduce you know, a new social democracy because that happens from pressure from below. So yeah, you know, it has to respond to some of the cracks. But, you know, the critical question is what's happening to labor. And the cr critical question of what's happening to labor is the left's inability to penetrate the labor movement, to embed itself in labor. I mean, this is the striking thing about Corbyn was that for all the energy of momentum and the commitment, uh, there was very little of a, a socialist base in the labor movement. There were a couple of unions, not many, a couple of very important ones that supported Corbyn. But the message to their members was that Corbyn would be better. It wasn't about radicalizing as part of a socialist transition. Sanders had support from a lot of locals and some unions, but still it wasn't embedded enough so that after Sanders fell, you suddenly had this base of challenging the Democratic Party. Uh, Sarisa had very little of a base in the unions. That's been kind of a pattern in the shift from protest to politics, that the new politics has sometimes, uh, you know, Andrew Murray, who was uh, uh, in an advisor in uh, Unite and became an advisor to Corbyn, talked about uh, the movements and the left being class-focused, but not class-rooted. And I think it was a great insight the left began to talk a populist language of class, uh, but it wasn't rooted in the working class. And that has been incredibly costly. And that's the critical question, I think, about politics in the next few decades. Uh, and it's also a critical question about how we understand what happens in the state, how much it has to calculate in terms of, you know, making minor concessions in terms of legitimacy or, you know, simply reproducing the system. Uh, but, you know, we haven't seen any signs, you know, I mean, you, you look at Biden and for all the good things, positive things, surprising things, he's not supporting universal health care. He's not supporting a card check. Uh, you know, he's not challenging property rights around the environment. And when you go through all of those things, uh, what you see is that the left is getting kind of soft on this guy because it doesn't have a frame for addressing this. And, and the left was having this problems with Trump in terms of how do you address free trade? They didn't want to criticize free trade because then it sounds like they're on Trump's side. And they couldn't, be, because they didn't have a class criticism of free trade. It ended up to be kind of a national criticism where you sound patriotic or not. So these are the kind of dilemmas that we really have to 
address, and I, I don't, we don't have time to get into it now, but I, I, I'd love to just chat about it. Well, that was a great summary, I think, of uh, the topics at hand. You know, there's always much more to say uh, when we chat, Sam. You know, I'm sure there will be an, another part to this somewhere down the line uh, when when events arise. Uh, we haven't talked any uh, at all about uh, the seemingly impending uh, green jobs reorganization that's happening. I've seen some signs, and this may be conspiratorial, so take this as a you know, dear listener, take this uh, as kind of tongue in cheek, but I've seen some reports that suggest that there are some senators buying up uh, small energy stocks and things like that to, that might suggest, because these bastards are all crooked, <laughs> that might suggest that there are some plans underway to integrate kind of the smaller energy, energy sector and kind of infuse them with some cash and some guarantees and all the rest of it. So there, there's much more to be uh, to, to, to be assessed and analyzed about Biden's uh, strategies going forward. But, uh, you know, I really wanted to bring in the show to talk about neoliberalism. And I think we've rounded that conversation a lot better and we'd all do well to think about this seriously because, you know, this isn't a question of just putting finance back in the box. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We're talking about a, a, a relentlessly, relentlessly reorganized you know, financial sector and industry and capital and uh, the pressures of dollar seniorage. I mean, it just makes your head spin. But we do need to have a grasp on all of these things. So that our strategies align with the world as it actually exists, uh, I think that's the real. The real. Uh, if, if I could just add to that, Adam, yeah, please do. Please. I mean, you know, th- there's the question that you're trying to get at, which is we we better understand the world in a sober way, not in a way that makes us more comfortable. Uh, in a hard way, that's a start. And the second thing is, even if we think the solutions are polarized, and we have to start thinking not about socialism as more state uh, or having healthcare, which is very important. The rest of the world has it and isn't socialist. But even if our objective is that we need socialism, that things have gotten to the point where we really have to think about socialism or we're going to be stuck in things, it still forces us to think about, yeah, but how do you move from there, here to there? And just kind of making the point rhetorically uh, you know, workers can look at you and say, well, that's nice, but I have no reason based on my experience to think that it's possible. And how do we cope with this? And that raises a lot of questions about what momentum does now, what uh, DSA people does. It means that a lot of activists are going to go into the social democratic or not even social democratic institutions because the left doesn't really show an alternative. And one of the questions I think we need to talk about is how do people are going to do that? And how do socialists who are outside of the the Democratic Party relate to socialists who are inside? Other than there should be a continuous debate. That goes without saying. But is there other ways that we can think of engaging in a way that can look towards building something? And I think that's a that's a different and complex discussion, which maybe we could have, or maybe we could have with somebody else on a couple of people who disagree on with you to discuss it and have a really good discussion. Right. Yeah. Either way, we're going to have to start building that. I think a lot of people are a little bit, I myself included, am disappointed uh, at the way the Bernie apparatus kind of collapsed. You know, there's this list of emails and uh, organizations and people who were willing to do things. And there was a, you know, an attempt to found a people's party or something has completely collapsed. And of course it was going to collapse, but, uh, but that is the challenge of our time. 
as it always was, as it always will be. Sam Gennon, thanks again for coming on the program. And again, look forward to having you back on uh, many, many times in the future. Thanks, Adam. Talk soon.